Welcome to RoyalOaks.com. I'm Royal Oaks. So this is to explain why I'm a moderate when it comes to politics. I guess it's an argument about why it's better to be a moderate than an extremist. I'm going to try to explain a couple of things. First, the reasons people should react to the rising tide of anger and extremism by moving to the moderate center. And second, why Republicans risk extinction if they don't broaden their appeal. I'll talk about some less-than-noble motives that influence extremists on both the left and the right. Four things that tug people toward the political poles. We'll talk about key issues like terrorism and immigration and income inequality that are magnets for folks who are drawn to the extremes. We'll do a little report card on how the Trumps and the Bernies and the Hillarys stack up on this scale. And finally, we'll answer the question... Is there any way out for Republicans in this interesting political year? The problem with extremists on both sides of the political spectrum is that they're motivated by bad things. The first bad thing extremists are motivated by is good old-fashioned hate. Some people make public policy decisions on who and what they hate. The rich, in some cases, and the racists, in all cases, by definition, hate certain people who aren't like them. They hate poor people because of the traditional rivalry based on class warfare, the fact that poor people over the millennia traditionally tend to rise up and kill the rich. So they make decisions about public policy, economics, taxes, and entitlements based on hate. We have the same problem on the left. Some people hate the rich. They resent the success of the rich. They can't stand it when they walk down the street and see that big shiny house on the top of the hill. They frankly would just assume the rich would disappear. But the next best thing is to take all their money. If they can't get away with that, they'll take 90%, feel the burn, or 80%, or whatever they can get. So this is the motivation for extremists on the left and the right. They have this visceral hatred for the other. It's not exactly a good basis for making public policy decisions. The second characteristic of extremists is they're motivated by greed. For some, it isn't so much that they hate the people at the other end of the political spectrum or social spectrum. It's just that they like to get as much stuff as they can and hold on to it. So on the right, some people who are really rich, not really caring about how the other half lives or the other 47%, whatever you want to say, they're going to push public policies that essentially line their pockets. They want to keep the tax burden as low as humanly possible. They want to cut expenditures to the bone. They're going to scrutinize entitlements and make sure nobody's getting anything more than absolutely necessary in terms of amounts of goodies from the government. Similarly, on the left, you have the greedy. The greedy don't really care what makes sense from a public policy standpoint. They just want as much money in their pockets flowing from the government as they can possibly get. It's all about their happiness, their financial well-being. Whether they deserve it, whether they worked hard, whether they wasted it, they just want it. Now, there's another form of greed that comes into play, again, at both extremes, and that's keeping your job as a politician. On the right, you have politicians who are very greedy about holding on to their jobs. And they know the way to hold on to those positions is to traffic in corporate welfare, accept contributions from big companies, and vote on public policy issues just the way the big companies want them to vote. And that's how they roll. 
Now you flip over to the left side of the spectrum and you have politicians who know that it's a really clever thing to buy votes, to promise goodies, to constantly push the envelope, to give away the maximum amount of entitlements. Free college tuition? You betcha! Free house? Sure, ridiculously easy to get home loans. Minimum wage? 15 bucks an hour, 20, whatever you want. The more you give away, the more folks will remember you come November. Oh, and by the way, if you get people to come from overseas to America and either vote or participate in the political process, that's a really smart way to hold on to your job, too. Their motivation isn't, now this makes sense from a public policy standpoint. Instead, it's pure greed. So you want to stay away from those extremists as well. The third problem with extremists is that they, how shall we put this, they live in a world of low information. On the right, you have the Trumpmeisters. Studies show the lower the voters' education level, the more likely they are to be in the Trump camp. They're not interested in explanations or arguments. They don't care about theories or public policy. They just want to build a wall, beat up on China, make America great again. On the left, you don't find many fans of applying critical thinking techniques when it comes to finances. They just say to themselves, well, we're all in this together. We should be compassionate. Basically, give us all your money and entitlements without focusing on the fact the market system not only assures a maximum degree of freedom, it actually works really well. But if there's one immutable, incontrovertible law of human nature... It is that people will work hard and society will grow if you reward hard work. And if you punish it, you get the opposite result. The extremists on the left don't realize you can't spend your way out of money trouble. If the economy is sputtering and there aren't enough jobs to keep people busy, it doesn't really help to go to rich folks and say, give us even more of your money, um, and we're then going to take an ad out in the paper and say, good news, we're building some roads south of Centerville. We're building a factory where we're going to make uh, cans for government cheese, and we're going to pay you 20 bucks an hour. Come on down, sign up. You'll have a job, you'll have money to pump into the economy. It doesn't work that way. When you take money away from the job creators, then you don't grow the economy. Sure, you put some people to work with the money that you took from the rich folks, but it's a formula for disaster because the productivity rate doesn't increase, the economy doesn't grow, people don't take risks. This isn't just a theory. We've seen dozens of economic laboratories all around the world over the last century or two, and the same lesson emerges over and over. You need to incentivize people to work hard and take risks and create jobs, or the economy will wither. And if the economy withers, then at some point you get so weak you can't defend yourselves, and the bad guys come from overseas and kill you and take all your stuff. In addition to these factors of hate and greed and low information, there's one more factor, and that's obsession. A hallmark of extremists is obsession. They sink their teeth into an idea or an issue. It could be political, it could be religious, and they just won't let go. There's no room for prudence or common sense or compromise, and neither side, neither extreme, has a monopoly on this. When it comes to guns, you have the gun right obsessives. They're so desperate to maintain the unfettered right to own guns, any guns, and are so convinced the government is going to round them up that they oppose even the most reasonable of restrictions in terms of background checks for the mentally ill, criminals, and so on. At the other end of the spectrum, there are the gun haters. To them, it's kind of like the Second Amendment doesn't exist. Years ago, the L.A. Times editorialized that except in the hands of soldiers and cops, 
Guns really should be criminalized. They only bring tragedy. Again, neither poll on the political spectrum has a monopoly on obsession. What about abortion? Well, for some people, don't get them started. Life begins at conception. That's all there is to it. Morning after pill? Tool of the devil. It's murder. Ban it. At the other end, abortion is a sacrament, a fundamental right. Don't talk to them about trimesters or viability of a fetus. Don't complain about late-term abortions. If mom wants an abortion at 8 months and 29 days, so be it. Religious views are common subjects for obsession. Sharia law? Hey, that's what the good book says. Women are second-class citizens. They need to be wrapped up in burqas. They can't drive. They can't vote. These are obsessives. You can't reason with them. It's just the way it is. Climate change is a rich vein for obsessives. It's kind of typified by Al Gore's famous statement, the debate is over. Really? The debate is over? That's funny. You've got lots of really smart, objective scientists with no axe to grind who say the effect of human activity on the climate is kind of like a drop of ink in a swimming pool. And others say our use of fossil fuel poses an extreme hazard over time. But that's what you call a debate. It's for really smart people to sort out and translate for the rest of us so the politicians, who in most cases are neither climate scientists nor rocket scientists, can understand what to do. It's not for Al Gore to sink his teeth into an issue and try to foist his obsession on the rest of us. And think of immigration. It's a magnet for obsessives. If you're obsessed with how bad the problem of immigration is, you want to round everybody up and send them home, doesn't matter how impractical that is, doesn't matter how many elections your party is going to lose when your party gets tarred with that brush. Same deal if you're in favor of open borders. If you're obsessed to the point where it doesn't really matter how much it weakens the nation, you just want your people to have an easy path into the country and into full citizenship, voting rights, welfare, and so on, you don't apply the principles of critical thinking to the problem of just how much damage that might do to our economy and our status as a sovereign nation with common values that are necessary to maintain strength and stand up to our enemies. Now, we have a got problem when it comes to trying to avoid extremists with their dubious motivations. Politics and government tends to attract extremists. It attracts the political junkies, the wonks, and most importantly, it attracts the people who are greedy when it comes to keeping their government jobs, whether that occurs as a result of giant corporations funneling money into government or the other end of the spectrum, greedy unions wanting only more and more benefits and protections for workers or groups in societies who just want bigger entitlements. Now, it's true that politicians understand that they have to get elected by the entire society, not just their party, and not just the extremists at one end of the political spectrum that they'd like to cater to. And so, after they have their fun during the primary, and they go into the general election in November, they have to run back to the center. But they do it as little as they can. And then, Tragically, if on occasion one party wins big in November so they control all of it, the White House, the Senate, the House, well, then forget about it. The pendulum has swung too far, too fast. It inevitably produces disastrous results that are not a product of compromise with the great center dictating public policy. By contrast, a moderate recognizes there are values and interests to be served across party lines that run throughout the political spectrum. Instead of giving the maximum quantity of government goodies to the soon-to-be voting public, guaranteeing shortages and rationing and long lines, when it comes to medical care, for example, politicians don't want to admit that providing medical care that's totally free 
will get you a Canadian-style system of health care, where people stream across the border to America because they don't feel like suffering from hip pain for four years while they stand in line for a hip replacement. They'd like it now, and they can get it now if they come to America. And instead of going to the other extreme, clinging to the notion that taxation is theft, we don't need no stinking safety net, a moderate approach works with human nature and the market system to create incentives to avoid disastrous economic results to make sure people have some skin in the game. Moderates understand that when someone is shopping for health care, whether it's a doctor or a nurse or a hospital or a bottle of aspirin or a colonoscopy, if you can create a situation where patients are smart, sharp-eyed consumers, as opposed to not having a care in the world about what things cost, because after all, it's just a big giveaway, then you enlist the consumer, the patient, in the process of keeping costs down and quality high, making sure the providers of medical care compete, just like the providers of bread and cars and everything else. They should compete to give you the best possible product at the lowest possible price. You get creative with the use of health savings accounts and deductibles, because if you don't, if you go Bernie pandering for votes by giving it all away, you buy yourself a social disaster. So let's see how the candidates stack up. We have any extremists in the bunch based on our criteria of hate and greed and obsession and kind of a harsh word, stupidity. Well, let's start with the Democrats. Bernie's pretty easy. No reason to think he's stupid. But he's a guy who has a double-barreled problem when it comes to income inequality. I'm guessing some rich guy spliced mud on Bernie's shoes when he was 10, and he's been simmering about it ever since. I don't know that he's so greedy. I don't think he lives like a king or he's so wrapped up in buying votes so he can keep his job as a politician. His problem mainly seems to be his obsession when it comes to rich folks. Now we come to Hillary. Certainly not stupid. Uh, and I'm not picking up a lot of hate, at least when it comes to the income inequality area. I mean, let's face it, she's lived like Marie Antoinette most of her adult life. She pulls down 250 grand for a speech, lives on private jets, mansions, servants. She can't seriously hate rich people or the idea that some people get to be super rich. I mean, talk about self-loathing. Now, it's not stupidity or hatred. So let's be honest, when it comes to Hillary, we're talking greed. It's all about her becoming the first woman president. It's all about her striking back against the guy who humiliated her in front of the entire planet. At the end of the day, I think she wants to be able to look at Bill and say, hey, isn't that interesting? You aren't even the only president in our family. You aren't even the only president in our marriage. And maybe I'll be remembered as the better president. Yeah, I think that's what Hillary's problem is. That's what makes her an extremist. It's the greed. She wants the money. She wants the fame. She wants the votes. And she's willing to do just about anything to get them. Now we move over to the Republican side, and we come to Donald Trump. He's not stupid, at least in the IQ sense. He's kind of stupid in the sense that part of intelligence is just being informed about things. I mean, you can have the biggest IQ in the world, but if you don't bother to study the map of the Middle East and learn the Sunnis from the Shias and talk to some experts about Middle East history and international relations and military tactics and alliances and feuds, well, you might as well be stupid. You might as well have a very low IQ because you don't have the information on which to make intelligent decisions and employ critical thinking. And when you listen to Donald Trump, it's like he doesn't have any information at all. He just has sound bites and platitudes and glittering generalities. So in a sense, stupidity is a problem for him. But the main problem, let's face it, is greed. Not in the money sense. He's got his $10 billion or $8 billion or $6 billion or whatever he's got. But he's a megalomaniac. He's greedy for fame, 
He's a narcissist. He knows that the way to feed that narcissism is to become president of the United States of America. And the way to do that is to promise people things. Now, the socialists promise lots of financial goodies. Trump makes a different kind of promise. Read it on his baseball cap. Make America great again. He doesn't explain how. He doesn't explain what the hell he's talking about when he talks about Mexico paying for a wall or, or beating up on China. He just expects you to believe in the bluster, the bravado. I mean, let's face it. If he thought it would help him get elected, he'd wear a hat that said, make America crappy again. He doesn't care whether America's great or crappy. If the crappy hat would get him elected, he'd wear it. He'd push it. He doesn't actually believe in anything. He's been so all over the map on every issue, from abortion to socialized medicine, we got to give single-payer a good hard look, to immigration. For him to call himself a conservative is a little laughable. Now, he may implement conservative principles, because ultimately he may come to think, hey, that's what works, that's what a lot of people like. If I want to get reelected, I better fulfill some of those promises that I appeared to believe in. But he doesn't really seem to believe in anything. So he's probably not a hater for him, it boils down to greed. So then you have these other guys, frankly, the moderates, John Kasich, George Bush, Marco Rubio. There's probably not much difference among them. They all seem to be smart, fairly greedy in the sense that they're professional politicians. They love the idea of getting elected. They're fine with saying things they need to say in order to get elected. But their kind of greed doesn't seem pathological. And when you look at the track record of a guy like John Kasich, 18 years in the House, lots of balanced budgets, lots of experience on military committees, it seems like he's a smart guy who employs critical thinking, maybe a little temperamental. Now, there is a dark side to coming out as a moderate. When you say you're a moderate, it's kind of like saying you're nothing. You don't really stand for anything. Hopefully, what it boils down to is common sense, acknowledging human nature and embracing basic values like justice and truth and courage. And oh, by the way, staying away from greed, hate, stupidity, and obsession. But here's the problem. Extremists have an easy time selling their pitch. You can hold a rally. You can pass out leaflets all over town. Rally 3 o'clock at the Masonic Hall for everybody who wants to hear about income inequality or the Tea Party. It's going to be standing room only. But try packing them in if you'd put up a sign that says, Come one, come all, moderate rally at noon. But if you'd like to actually win an election, you can learn a lesson from Barry Goldwater's experience back in 1964. He stood up at the Republican convention at the Cow Palace in San Francisco and announced, Extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice, and moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. And of course, he went down to a crushing defeat. Unless Republicans can present a moderate, rational alternative to the last eight years built on individualism, self-reliance, capitalism, the free market, and compassion, we're looking at another eight years of a progressive agenda that pretty much boils down to driving job creators out of town and handing the reins of society over to bureaucrats. Republicans are tearing out their hair because they seem to be in a no-win situation. Either Trump will be the nominee, in which case he'll be trounced by Hillary. He can't bring himself to denounce white supremacists. All Hispanic immigrants are criminals. Women's are pigs and slobs. You're looking at a landslide. When you stack up the poll numbers, John Kasich beats Hillary by about 10 points. Cruz beats her by 3 or 4. Donald Trump loses by about 10. And if you somehow play games with the rules and take the nomination away from Trump, he's such a maniac he's going to run as a third-party candidate, which also guarantees a Hillary victory. So what do you do? 
Well, it's really frustrating because 2006 should have been the Republicans' turn. The American public simply doesn't let the same party keep the White House three times in a row. You could look it up. George Bush 41 beat Michael Dukakis in 1988 after two terms of Ronald Reagan. Okay, that was three in a row. Other than that, since 1950, it has never happened. Mix in the fact that dissatisfaction among independents with the Obama legacy is palpable. All the GOP needed was a nice, pleasant, moderate to conservative candidate, and history would have repeated itself. But the obsession with celebrity and name recognition and plain talk and the baseball cap behind which no meaning lurked blew up that plan. So Republicans have to start to live with the idea of losing the White House again. But what they can't live with is the prospect of Congress returning to the Democrats' hands again. That would really seal the deal. We saw what happened when the extraordinary circumstances in 2008 led to the Democrats controlling not only the White House, but the Senate and the House. Politics are built on the pendulum swinging. No matter how nutty the right is or the left is, the basic common sense of the public always takes over and moves the pendulum back to the center. But that can't happen if Democrats take over the Congress as well as the White House. Hillary and Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi will use the Obama years as a launching pad, and the giveaways will just escalate. They will do everything they can to assure decades of loyalty from folks with their hands out, and there will be nothing the Republicans can do to stop it any more than they could stop Obamacare. So how do you prevent a Democrat sweep? Well, that's for the political scientists to figure out. Uh, seems like pumping all available money and volunteer forces into the Senate and House races that are most up in the air, bringing in the smartest, most tech-savvy political operatives to bear on the election, full use of social media. This is a goal-line stand, but the stakes are a lot bigger than a six-point touchdown and a point after. They're a lot bigger than the Super Bowl. This is about the future of the nation. Eight years, we can survive, barely. 16 years, forget about it. Turn out the lights. We might as well be annexed by Western Europe. We'll probably change our name to Finlandia or Sweden West. If you think I'm being a nervous Nelly, consult the wisdom of some of the most insightful people from American history. Alexis de Tocqueville in 1838 said, The American Republic will endure until the day Congress discovers it can bribe the voters with the public's money. Alexander Hamilton said, democracy will cease to exist when people realize they can vote themselves largesse out of the public treasury. After that, the majority always votes for the candidate promising the most benefits. I guess you could say it's a shock it took this long. I mean, 21st century people love free stuff, but folks weren't that much different in the 20th and 19th centuries, right? Maybe, but somehow down deep, the American people for over two centuries clung to the archaic notion that there were two driving forces in our lives. One was compassion, but the other was fairness. If you work hard, you should be rewarded. If you take risks and things pan out, you should be compensated for taking those risks. By embracing these two principles, we guaranteed continued success, economic expansion, military power, and the highest standard of living for the entire society on the planet. But now, because the politicians have become so clever, there is one overarching fundamental principle, and only one, to be followed by our lawmakers, and that's income equality, redistribution of wealth, the purchase of votes. So, an election is coming, folks. Get involved. 
in a moderate kind of way. Number 36 on our list of top 50 songs gets more popular with every passing decade. The cast of Almost Famous sang it as they rocked along on the tour bus, and the artist is still rocking around the clock. Here's Elton John with Tiny Dancer. Blue jean baby, L.A. lady, seamstress for the band. I'm late. 